So um, for the past couple of weeks, we've been uh, looking at um, C.S. Lewis as kind of a model for how we go about uh, sharing our faith with other people, uh, trying to do that in a conversational way, uh, asking questions that, that show we're really interested in knowing what other people think, uh, seeking first to, to understand, then, then to be um, understood. Um, and we, as I mentioned, we've been using uh, his book, Mere Christianity, as kind of a model for, t- for talking about faith. Um, but if your only exposure uh, to Lewis uh, was his book, Mere Christianity, it'd be really easy to conclude, and you would be wrong in concluding this, it'd be easy to conclude uh, that Lewis came to faith in Christ primarily through logic and reason. Now, you know, logic and reason played a huge part in it, for sure. Uh, and Lewis himself actually sometimes leaves us with the impression that it was a very intellectual process. Um, for instance, in his uh, spiritual autobiography called Surprised by Joy, he writes, in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I mean, he didn't come to belief in God because he was looking for that. He became convinced. One person summarized uh, Lewis's spiritual journey. To Lewis, belief in God was the only intellectually honest position he could take. It's really interesting. Um, early on, it, it, it really, uh, in large measure, the, the trip from atheism to uh, believing in God was kind of an an intellectual process for him. He says, um, said early on as a young man, I'm an empirical theist. I have arrived at God by induction. Doesn't sound like a real personal relationship, though, does it? Uh, not yet a, a Christian, though. He had uh, turned a corner from atheism to believing in God, uh, but becoming a believer, a Christ follower, would come a little bit later. And it would come in large part through the godly influence of his Christian friends and colleagues at Oxford University. Um, People like J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy who wrote The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, uh, and their mutual friend Hugo Dyson. Uh, The three of them had this uh, late-night, life-changing, transformative conversation um, along Addison's Walk in Modeling College at Oxford University on September of 1931. And Lewis himself says, Dyson and Tolkien were the immediate human causes of my conversion. And then he adds, is any pleasure on earth as great as a circle of Christian friends by a good fire? Um, by the way, that picture is intentionally, it looks the way it, it does because I wanted to give us, that is Addison's Walk, and I wanted to give a sense of what it would look like by, um, by moonlight as they walk together. Um, like I said, um, while Lewis at times gives the impression that early on um, he came to believe in God solely through intellect, he really became a Christian uh, in a way that did not involve logic alone. Imagination played a huge part in his conversion. Imagination. Um, one of his earliest influences in this regard was a, um, a person he actually never met in person, 
um, but whom he read and whom he considered one of his mentors. Um, a guy who was a Scottish poet and author, Scottish clergyman, by the name of George MacDonald. Before Lewis was, um, became a Christian, he was uh, on a train journey, and he was standing at a uh, bookstall in a train station, it kind of uh, looking at, at different books and so on, and he came across a, a copy of a book called Fantasties. I think it's called Fantasties, a modern uh, fairy tale, uh, was written by this guy, George MacDonald. And by the way, look at George MacDonald. Doesn't he look like he should live in Portland? <laughs> I just get that sense. Look, he kind of looks hipster to me. Um, but anyway, Lewis read, read this book and <clears throat> found it absolutely extraordinary. He never had read anything like it before. And he actually wrote that, that later on through it, he, he used the words, my imagination was baptized. Isn't that interesting? Now, I, w- I want you guys to understand something. When I talk about imagination, I'm not talking about um, the world of make-believe. Imagination isn't about make-believe. Imagination is this capacity that God gives every single one of us. You know, sort of logic and reason sort of takes things apart Imagination kind of puts them all together in, in new ways and sees, um, sees meaning in, in them. Um, this book, Fantasties, transformed the way that, that Lewis experienced the world. I mean, really, was it, he just started looking at the world in a different way. It's, it kind of opened his heart and mind uh, to the reality of something holy, he used to see the world as just kind of this, uh, he was an, an atheist and believed in kind of the strict determinism and, and just saw the world as kind of a dark and grim and um, dreary place. But after reading Fantasties, there, there was something holy that he began to recognize. Now, I've read Fantasties, and I've got to tell you, this book is the farthest thing from a logical, reasoned argument as any book you could ever read. It's fiction. It is, um, it, it is a, a kind of a, a, a magical uh, book, um, which I would argue is how it worked its magic in Lewis's heart. This same guy, George MacDonald, later wrote a story that, that began with these words. There was once a wise man to whom was granted the power to send forth his thoughts in shapes that other people could see. I love that. I want to read that story. Uh, What happens? There was once a wise man to whom was granted the power to send forth his thoughts in shapes that other people could see. And when, when Lewis read Fantasties, he actually saw the shape of McDonald's thought communicated something that, um, that had never been communicated to Lewis before. And over time, see what happened is over time, uh, Lewis would largely abandon uh, his explaining and defending Christianity and instead turn to works of imagination so that he could give shape to his thoughts and that other people could see them. This week we are 
uh, concluding this little uh, three-week mini-series on sharing your faith without losing your friends. And what I want to do today is just talk a little bit about uh, the power and the importance of storytelling and imagination in sharing uh, our faith, communicating the good news of God's love uh, in an effective and engaging way, especially with, with people um, who aren't believers. One of the things that, that I found, found fascinating, uh, find fascinating, and I've come across this a number of times in essays that I've read about, the reviews that I've read about mere Christianity, is that mere Christianity uh, is most loved by people who are already Christians. Because, you know, they're, they're folks who maybe grew up in the church or whatever, went away to college, found their uh, faith challenged by, um, you know, new ideas that they were being exposed to, and found in Lewis this, like, intellectual voice that could help them understand and, and sort of defend their faith and, and so on. Um, so it's not necessarily uh, going to be effective to, to give somebody that you know and love, um, a copy of Mere Christianity and think that that's going to change their life. Lewis um, largely abandoned uh, kind of this project of of explaining and defending Christianity around the mid-40s or so um, for a couple of reasons. One reason was uh, he said that he found it just spiritually exhausting and one of the reasons he found it so spiritually exhausting is he sort of felt like, if I've done that great a job explaining and defending the Christian faith, and it all depends on my argument, man, that's a flimsy reason for people to believe in God, something that I did, right? That makes sense, doesn't it? Also, he, he came to understand that, you know, really when people come to faith, it is... Um, probably not on the basis of our having some intellectual discussion with them. That might play a, a, a role. That might, that might be a piece of it. But that usually only takes them so far as, uh, as overcoming some intellectual um, reservations or questions they might have. It doesn't really bring them to the point of faith. And that's why uh, in today's message, it, it's really important, and I want this to be the first part for us all to understand the part that imagination plays in our becoming believers. Understand the role, the part that stories and imagination play in our becoming believers. Um, now, I, just as a footnote here, imagination plays a really important part in people becoming unbelievers as well. And again, I want to remind you that the word imagination doesn't refer only or even primarily to the world of make-believe. And to make my point, you know, scientists use imagination all of the time. They could not do their work without using their imaginations. How do you come up with a hypothesis? Uh, with a testable hypothesis. You have to use your imagination. The thought experiments that Einstein used to arrive at his revolutionary theories in physics, he called them thought experiments. Totally works of imagination. 
How did he arrive at the formula E equals MC squared? Imagination. Um, Stephen Hawking used his imagination. Even in the, the world of, uh, of medicine, when you go to a doctor and you're you know, describing some kind of problem and they want to describe what they think it is and, uh, and the treatment protocols and all this kind of stuff, uh, isn't it interesting how we um, have medical conversations where, where we talk about the heart being a pump, the lungs being like balloons that inflate and deflate. The arteries and veins are, are like little tubes, and these little tubes can, can sometimes get clogged, and they need to be cleaned out. That's all imagination. These are images, pump, balloon, uh, tubes. Image, they're images that are formed in one person's imagination and then communicated and received in another person's imagination. You know, Jesus was a master at appealing to people's imaginations. He's a master, telling stories, painting pictures that communicated spiritual truth. And this explains why, as Matthew tells us, that Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parable. He did not say, I think we're way behind on the slides, by the way. I think we're reading the manuscript, rather. So, uh, he spoke all these things in, um, to the crowd in parable. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. You know, we remember the lessons that Jesus taught because of the stories that he told. The story of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the prodigal son. The picture he paints of the last judgment where the sheep are separated from the goats. You know, the truth that he shares in those stories, I mean, they could kind of be boiled down to points. But the point is that Jesus didn't do messages that had points. He told stories. And why was that? Because he didn't just want to uh, share a, 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 one of his ideas. He wanted us to enter into the reality of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I'm just kind of curious. How many of, of you guys went to church when you were little kids? Okay, so I didn't when I was a little kid. Um, my, my parents weren't churchgoers and so on, so it's kind of unusual that, um, that I would become a pastor, but not, I guess, that unusual. But well, one of the things I, I, I know is this. Is if you went to church when you were a kid, you are going to remember the story of Noah's Ark. You are going to remember the story of Joseph and the coat of many colors. And you're going to remember what jerks his brothers were. 
And how God, even though he grew up in this kind of dysfunctional family, which you wouldn't have used that word when you were a little kid, but you would have sensed the reality of it. Even though his family was totally messed up, somehow God was able to take all of that and put him in a position so that he could save the very brothers who had tried to, who had sold him into slavery. You all will remember the story of David and Goliath. And by the way, isn't David and Goliath a great story for a little kid? Because you are this small person in a world where everybody else is giants. And everybody else is so much smarter and everybody else is so much bigger and stronger. And here is a story about a kid who is able to face this big bully and win. David and Goliath. You know, those stories and the stories that Jesus told, uh, they're sticky. They stay with us long after the class is over and the book is closed and we've gone home. As a matter of fact, those stories are so sticky that you don't have to grow up in church to know about Noah's Ark and Joseph and the coat of many colors, and David and Goliath, because they've become part of culture. And they communicate truth. They communicate memorable, sticky truth, truth that stays with us, truth that doesn't just communicate facts to our head, but meaning to our hearts. All of which is to stay, say, I really want you guys to get this point. Imagination plays a huge part in people's becoming believers. Stories play an amazing, uh, important role in our coming to know and to love God. So given that, one of the things I want to encourage you to do is learn how stories can communicate the gospel in a powerful and irreplaceable way. Next slide, please. Um, in his preface to Mere Christianity, Lewis tells us a, a bit uh, about why he agreed to deliver these lectures that are these radio broadcasts on BBC during uh, wartime, uh, Second World War, that eventually um, became the book Mere Christianity. He says... Ever since I became a Christian, I have thought that the best, perhaps the only service I could do for my unbelieving neighbors was to explain and defend what he called mere Christianity or basic Christianity shared by believers all places and all times. But as I mentioned, he came to a point in his life when he just began to focus less and less on explaining and defending Christianity because it didn't work, because it exhausted him. And he relied more and more on offering opportunities to people to experience Christianity. And how did he do that? Stories. Stories. Lewis wrote, Lots of fiction. I think I've read uh, all of, uh, of Lewis's fiction, most of his nonfiction as well. He, he wrote fiction uh, before the radio broadcast, before Mere Christianity, but he wrote a, a lot after that as well. Like the parables of Jesus, they present truth in story form. As a matter of fact, somebody has argued that almost every point that Lewis made in um, Mere Christianity, he made in uh, stories. 
His fictional works include, this may surprise some of you, his fictional works include a science fiction trilogy. Did you know that? Three books. One was called Out of the Silent Planet. Another one, Paralandra, sometimes called A Trip to Venus. And a third one, That Hideous Strength. Science fiction genre. It included children's literature. Most, Lewis is probably best known nowadays for The Chronicles of Narnia, starting with you know, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's seven books altogether. He wrote a novel which he considered his best work. It was his worst-reviewed work. Most people didn't understand it. He loved it, thought it was, you know, always kind of made fun of it that, you know, this is the book I think is my best work and people don't get it. It's a book called Till We Have Faces, a novel. And he wrote other stuff that, that I know some of you have read, things like The Great Divorce, um, which is uh, about a group of people who go on a bus ride from hell to heaven and are given an opportunity to stay in heaven and decide to go back because they like hell better. It's interesting. It's really insightful, too. He wrote the book The Screwtape Letters, which is a book that's written by this uh, demon named Screwtape who's trying to teach uh, one of his younger colleagues how to mess with Christians and how to tempt us and everything. And it is a mind-bending read. It was originally published as, you know, kind of a serial weekly thing, and all the letters were put together in a book. And uh, it's a fascinating read, and it's one that takes a little bit of getting used to because you realize that it's like if you could um, think of the exact opposite of everything that you believe and everything that God teaches and put it down on paper, that's that book. It's, it's really interesting. And, and he wrote others as well. By the way, this is uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, desk at his home in the Kilns um, in North um, Headington in, at Oxford. But again, the point is, rather than explain and defend Christianity, he offers us this opportunity to experience it and, uh, and to hear um, again for maybe the first time again what Christianity really means. Because the, the problem is that for a lot of people, um, they thought they understood it and dismissed it. It had gotten old. It had gotten tired. It had become predictable. And Lewis said, that's only because you don't get it. And he had to tell stories in order to help people really experience it in a fresh way. Now, the Chronicles of Narnia is a great example of, of this. We are introduced uh, to Narnia, this kingdom of Narnia, in the first of these seven books. It's called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And uh, Narnia, um, we are originally introduced to it because this little girl, Lucy, is playing hide-and-seek with her um, with her sibs, and uh, she decides to hide in this wardrobe, kind of this freestanding uh, closet, by the way, one of C.S. Lewis's wardrobes is in Westmont, uh, just in Santa Barbara. You can go check it out. 
But Lucy uh, climbs into this wardrobe to hide, and she decides she's going to hide as far back as she can, and she starts pushing through all these uh, coats and stuff, and she keeps going and going and going until it starts turning cold, and she goes through the last of the coats and walks out into this wintry scene. She finds herself in another world. And she tells her sibs about it, and nobody believes her until they finally all go in themselves. And they find themselves in this place, this kingdom called Narnia, that has um, been under the rule of an evil queen who's made it winter all the time. It's always winter and never Christmas. Bleak picture, right? And there are these rumors about the, their king, this lion named Aslan, who one day will return and make everything right. And some people believe that and other people don't. And some people are really longing for it. And other people are siding with the queen and all this stuff. And eventually Aslan returns. And um, in the course of the story, one of uh, Lucy's siblings uh, betrays not only her family, but the whole kingdom of, of Narnia. And she's going to be put to death because of her treachery, or he's going to be put to death because of his treachery. And so Aslan uh, voluntarily allows himself to be put to death in his place. Uh, killed on a great stone table, paying the price for sins that he had not committed. The king taking the place of a person who had committed treachery. And um, you should read the story. It's, it's a great story. Um, through uh, Spoilers, most of you know the story. Through Aslan's death and his return from death, Narnia and her creatures are set free from their bondage under this uh, evil ruler. It's beautifully written, um, and it can just be enjoyed as a story. It's just a great story. But you know what? Um, and the, the thing is, it's more than just a story. A lot of adult readers at the time um, missed its message, but most children didn't. And they would write to C.S. Lewis and say, how, tell him how much... They loved Aslan and how much they loved Narnia. And could they go back there again? And the amazing thing about Lewis, uh, despite the fact that he suffered from, uh, from arthritis and, and all the rest, had a funny um, hand that uh, was lacking joints so that it was really hard for, for him to write. But he wrote handwritten letters to every child who wrote to him. Um, the next book, Prince Caspian, um, tells about a later time in Narnia when the old stories about Aslan are starting to be disbelieved. People are wondering, did that really happen or is that just a legend? Uh, in the voyage of the Don Treader, um, 
Lewis does a lot of amazing things in that book. One of, one of my favorite scenes uh, paints a picture of the, the painful transformation, I think, that every single one of us has to undergo as followers of Jesus Christ in order to shed that old self that we were in order to become the Christ-like people that God created us to be. It's a painful process. Anybody that's ever been through a 12-step group knows the painful process of shedding the old self to put on Christ. And the way Lewis tells this story is one of the characters, this kid named Eustace Scrub. What a horrible name. And Lewis says he deserved it. Um, but this little kid named Eustace Scrub, he's so self-centered and so greedy and everything. And because of his greed, he's turned into a dragon. And he doesn't want to be a dragon anymore. And so the story is told of the undragoning of Eustace Scrub and how all of these layers have to be peeled off. All of his dragon layers have to be peeled off and how painful it is and at the same time how good it feels. In the same story, Voyage of the Don Treader, uh, Lewis introduces us to uh, virtue and courage and what they look like in a life well lived, embodied in the character of Reepa Cheep the Mouse, this little swashbuckling guy who is the smallest character in the book but has the biggest spirit and the most courage. The end. It's interesting. Um, Aslan appears at the end of the of the book, and uh, he appears not only as a lion but as a lamb. And he talks about how, uh, in your world, I appear in a different way. There's an extraordinary scene in another one of the uh, the books, the Silver Chair. By the way, the Silver Chair is. Uh, uh, is uh, scheduled to uh, become a movie and filming is going to be starting like in a month or so for this this next uh, uh, in the, the movie franchise. But there's an amazing scene um, in the silver chair that describes how uh, another evil queen, queen of a, the underworld, is able to trap and enchant and come close to convincing a group of children and their friend Puddleglum, the Marsh Wiggle, um, that Narnia and the stars and the sun and Aslan don't exist. That it's all just a made-up story. By the way, this uh, Puddleglum, the um, the Marsh Wiggle, was a character that was based on C.S. Lewis's real gardener, this really glum guy named Fred Paxton. He just, I'm going to throw Fred in there because Fred's so awesome. Um, but here are these kids all trapped under, underground in this, this underworld um, and the, by this queen, and, and she's playing this hypnotic music, and there's a, a fire uh, that's burning, and, and smoke is pouring off of it. And this smoke, you know, has this uh, this drug-like, hypnotic effect on all of them, and she's just starting to to uh, cast her spell on them and enchant them, and they they start talking about the real world, and she says, 
what is this sun, S-U-N? What is this sun that you speak of, asked the evil queen. Please it your grace, said the prince very coldly and politely. He says, you, you see that lamp? It's yellow and round and it gives light to the whole room and it hangs from the roof. That thing that we call the sun is like that lamp, only greater and and brighter. It gives light to the whole overworld, and it hangs from the sky. Hangs from the what? asks the witch. You can't tell me. You can only tell me the sun is like the lamp. Your sun is a dream. And there is nothing in that dream that isn't copied from the lamp. The lamp is the real thing. The sun is just a tale, a children's story. Yes, I see now, said Jill in a heavy, hopeless tone. It must be so. And while she said this, it seemed to make very good sense. The witch just keeps continuing. There is no sun. There never was a sun. Well, the cool thing is that Puddle Glum will have none of this. And even though he's kind of being drawn into it, he you know, just musters up this courage and he challenges uh, the witch and walks over to the fire and stamps it out. And once the fire is stamped out and the smoke is all gone, everybody suddenly comes to their senses. The spell is broken. You know, one of the interesting things that Lewis said about his own writing is that, um, uh, you know, when people write about magic and spells and all this kind of stuff, it's very interesting how it works. Sometimes people tell, uh, you know, do these, uh, um, you know, use magic to cast spells over people. He said, one of the things I try to do in my writing is uh, to break the spell. You know, I'm, I'm tempted to explain what Lewis is getting at in that conversation about the lamp is the only real thing, there's no sun and everything. I'll leave it to stand except to say, that we do live in a world where many people have been lulled into believing that what we see here is all that there is. That there is no heaven, that there is no God, that there is no Christ, that there is really no love. Or if there is love, it's just a result of random bumping together of atoms that happen to organize themselves over time, not because of any guiding intelligence, but just randomly. And people hear that story and go, yes, that is the way it is, isn't it? Uh, Lewis, uh, it, it, he writes a couple other books, too, in, in this uh, series. One of them um, is called The Magician's Nephew that 
beautifully describes Aslan creating Narnia. It's just awesome. It's a creation story. Another one called um, the, uh, the Horse and His Boy. But um, the last one in the series is a book called The Last Battle. And I have to say that, um, like many of you, um, you know, just, again, I didn't grow up in the church. And, you know, when I was first exposed to the book of Revelation, I was going, what is this book? I totally don't understand it. And, and really it kind of struggled with understanding it my, uh, my whole life, as, as many people have. The book of Revelation never made as much sense to me as when I read The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis. It's about how, in the end, it's going to be exactly as God planned. By God's grace. It'll be a challenge getting there. And there will be struggles along the way. But the reward will be worth it. The end of um, the last battle in a... uh, chapter called Farewell to Shadowlands, which is one of the things, uh, one of the images Lewis uses to describe the world in which we live now, the Shadowlands. He has Aslan speaking. He says, as he spoke, he's talking to the children who had, had come to Narnia. As he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. Storytelling. I mean, that just, that speaks in a way um, that nothing else can. I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. Uh, If you have never done so before, I really want to encourage you to read the Chronicles of Narnia. It's supposed to be children's literature. It's so much more than that. Um, One last observation, one last application before we wrap it up. Um, I don't know if you know it or not, but we have a couple of published authors here at Stonebridge Community Church uh, who worship with us uh, every single week. Um, But the truth is most of us really aren't called. Either we don't have the the gift or we don't have the time or we're called to do something else. Uh, We're not called to be writers. 
But the thing is, uh, you don't have to be a writer in order to make use of stories, in order to tell stories. And, and I want to encourage you to make use of stories, of your story and the story, as you share your faith with your friends. Next slide, please. First, stories, telling stories. Where, where do we find stories to share with other people? Uh, as I said, most of us are not authors. Um, most of us, um, you know, may not have the gift of, uh, of just coming up with stuff like that. Sad to say, uh, not only are we not authors, uh, a lot of people aren't readers either. So where do we find stories that we can talk about with our friends? Stories that they would know as well as we know. Anybody have any ideas? I got one. Movies. Movies. There are lots of well-known movies that suggest Christian themes. And by the way, I want to be clear on this, they're not Christian movies. They're not that sub-genre of movie called Christian movies. I mean, Christian movies definitely carry Christian themes. But most of your friends that aren't believers are not going to go to see those movies. So you're not going to be able to talk about those. So what do you talk about? Talk about the movies that they, they have seen, the movies that everybody has seen, the movies that everybody knows. And you, if you have a discerning eye, and one of the things I want to encourage you to do is start, dis, um, start working on your discernment, spiritual discernment as you go to movies. Look for biblical themes. They are everywhere. Every single superhero movie whether it is the Marvel Universe or the DC Universe, is about good versus evil, light versus darkness. That's important. Why is it important? Remember the first message in this um, series when we're talking about mere Christianity and what Lewis is doing in that. He's establishing that we live in a world where there is a real right and a real wrong, and we can tell the difference between them. And you will see it acted out on the screen every week. Look for biblical themes like David versus Goliath. Every story about some underdog who is able to get it together and win against some bully or some uh, powerful force or whatever, it's a David-Goliath story. Look for the miracle theme. Things that are wildly impossible that come true. You want to know a great miracle movie? It's called Miracle. Wasn't that the one about the, the hockey team, right? It's a miracle. Amazing. Um, there are so many movies where you will see the theme of sacrificial death and the redemptive power that emerges from the sacrificial death from someone. You will find movie after movie after movie in which there is a resurrection theme. Look at the end of uh, Disney's Beauty and the Beast. When the beast is raised by the power of love and ascends in brightness, how could you miss it? He's dead and now he's alive. And there are movie after movie after movie. Superman dies. He comes back. 
By the way, Superman is amazing. Um, there have been uh, multiple books and um, and articles written about Superman. Uh, one of the Superman movies, um, Amy Adams, I think, is uh, Lois Lane, and she asks Superman, what does that S on your ch- chest stand for? And he says, that is not an S on my planet. Where I come from, that's a symbol that stands for hope. Look for the apocalyptic theme. Every zombie movie is about apocalypse. Every movie where um, a meteor is headed toward the world and it's, you know, the end of the world. It's an apocalyptic movie. Look for biblical images as, as you go to the movies. I'll tell you a biblical image uh, to look like movies and TV as, as well. The Ark. You know, every time you have a spaceship with a handful of people on board and the fate of humankind depends on their survival, that's an ark. Battlestar Galactica. It's Noah's Ark in outer space. Little different worldview, but you know what I'm talking about. Look for the cross. You know, when um, uh, Luke Skywalker and, um, uh, and his father spoiler, uh, are doing battle with one another and their swords cross. It is good versus evil. It is redemption. And isn't it interesting when their swords cross, it's a cross. Look at uh, the end of Grand Torino. It's a cross. The Harry Potter books and films, you know, for, for years and years and years, Christians were so opposed to them because um, people thought that they encouraged people to be involved in witchcraft and so on. I think it's a, the exact opposite. I think it was uh, uh, J.K., and she, will, she has said as much, it is a, a Christian story. It is filled with Christian symbols and images, if you are willing to look at it. The griffin of Gryffindor, it's a symbol for Christ. The unicorn, the stag, the phoenix rising out of death. The lion, that is a symbol of Gryffindor. It's Aslan, it is a Christ figure. Uh, And if you don't want to buy it, it, just check out um, this, uh, this picture from Uh, One of the Harry Potter, latter Harry Potter movies, Harry and Hermione are standing before Harry's parents' grave. And it is uh, night, dead of night, Christmas Eve. Now listen, folks, if it's Christmas Eve, that's some symbolism. If it's nighttime, that's some symbolism. They're in front of a grave, that's symbolism. And if you miss the symbolism, let me tell you what it says At the bottom of that tombstone, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You know, the whole battle with uh, Voldemort. You know, it's... These are imaginative works. We need to use our imaginations. Other people are using their imaginations. By the way, it takes imagination for us to see one another as we really are. Because we sit in church and we just see these people that we're used to and everything. One of the things that Lewis said when he delivered this amazing sermon called The Weight of Glory, he said that if we really saw one another as we truly are, we would almost fall on our knees before the other person. 
He said civilizations, nations, armies come and go, but they are eternal. It takes imagination to realize that, you know, people that we get a little annoyed with from time to time are part of the body of Christ. Gifted by God, that God is using each of us together to build a living temple. By the way, if you need help in, in uh, picking out uh, biblical themes and, and biblical figures and so on in TV and in movies, I really want to encourage you to visit a great website. It's called Think Christian. And this is, uh, happens to be the movie page on Think Christian, but it, you know, it does books and TV and all the rest. On the movie page, it writes about a wrinkle in time. It writes uh, about Itania, uh, Dunkirk and the fullness of time. I love this one, the sanctifying silliness of Groundhog Day. You know, you know the movie Groundhog Day? Bill Murray lives the same day over and over and over again. What breaks the spell? It's when he finally grows up and learns to love. It's awesome. So make use of stories. And make use of your story. Because God has given you a story that only you can tell. And every single part of that story has something to say about the goodness of God. Even those parts of the story that you would most like to forget... Maybe especially those parts of the story that you most would like to forget are the part of your story that may be the most valuable to share with other people. Because they show that in your darkest times, God was there, whether you realized it or not. Whether you had betrayed him, he was always faithful to you. Those dark times in your life can be uh, the, the single most important thing that another person can hear when they're going through a dark time. It's not our successes that other people need to hear about. It's our brokenness. And people need to know that we have been where they are and that God is faithful and that no matter how hard it might be, God will find a way. I wish Anthony Bourdain had known that. The point is to use stories and to use your own story to tell God's story and help people see Jesus. We have so much to learn from from C.S. Lewis about sharing our faith without losing our friends. You know, it really is about caring. It's about conversation. It's, it's about taking time to ask questions so that we really uh, know where they're coming from. It's about always being ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But it's also about story. Sometimes the best way to share the truth is by telling a story, telling your story, and then telling God's story. It worked for Jesus. It worked for Lewis. And I think it would work for us. So let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story.